Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, open them with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter number 6. Revelation chapter 6. While you're turning there, uh, let me say a word of thanks to uh, Barry Williams and Buddy Waldron who filled in for me for the last two weeks and also to uh, Matt Kiefer and Chris Gould who kept things going worship-wise while I was out. I appreciate all of them. I appreciate our church staff. I also want to call your attention to these flowers up here. They are in honor of Jake and Joan Cordell. Uh, on Wednesday, June the 2nd, they will celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. I think that deserves a hand, don't you? Yeah. So if you see Jake and Joan around uh, today, uh, give them a big hug and a congratulations. Because uh, that's, that's, that's quite a feat, and I thank God. I thank God for Jake and Joan Cordell. They've been a blessing to us since they've been here at our church. The book of Revelation is a... Strange book. It's a controversial book. Most of the time, when we study the Revelation, we look at it as offering a timeline for the end times. And I think that's a mistake, personally. I do believe that the Revelation points us to the end times, at least, especially in the later chapters. But the main purpose of the Revelation is not to provide a timeline to the end times. The purpose of the revelation is to provide comfort for Christians in crisis. And if I go into the revelation, beginning with chapter 1 and going all the way through chapter 22, and all I'm thinking about is is finding a timeline for the end times, I'm going to miss the richest blessings that God has provided for us in that book. Because it is for you and I who know the Lord, who go through crises in our lives, it is for us that this book was written. One of the things that John's readers, his recipients, have been wanting to know is, what is our future going to be like? They're in terrible crisis. And he has delayed telling them what their future will be. He has shown them a scroll, which is what we'd call today a book. And that book was in the the right hand of God the Father on the throne. And that book contained their future. And Jesus, in chapter 5, takes that book and it was a book that was rolled up as a scroll, and then it was sealed with six, uh, seven wax seals. And beginning with chapter 6, verse 1, each of those seals is taken off, and when each seal is taken off, a chapter, a succeeding chapter of their future uh, comes into play. Join me as I begin reading with chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb, that would be Jesus, opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, 
and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I heard, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's chapter 6. Chapter 7 provides an interlude, and then you skip to chapter 8 to get the final uh, seal, the seventh of the seals, those wax seals that are uh, uh, sealing that book of the future. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and then skipping to verse 6. Verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now verse 6. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The Revelation was written sometime around the year 95 A.D. The Roman Empire was in control, and the emperor, the uh, leader of the Roman Empire, was a man by the name of Caesar Domitian. Domitian thought that he was God. And he insisted that all people bow down and worship him as God. One of the things that he wanted every citizen of the Roman Empire, regardless of where they lived, to say was, Caesar is Lord, because he believed that he was God. One of the things that Domitian did was he persecuted Christians for no other reason than they were Christians, than they were a people who had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he persecuted them. Some of them were killed. Some of them were run away from their homes. Some of them had their businesses and their jobs taken away from them. Many of them had their children separated from parents and, and, and scattered so far from each other that they never saw each other again. Many people uh, were tortured. There were people who had to live out in caves during the day. And at night they would go out into the fields scrounging for food, competing with wild animals for that food, risking their lives during the day. If they went out because soldiers were looking for them and risking their lives at night because wild animals were trying to kill them. It was not a good time 
to be a Christian. John himself, the writer of the Revelation, is in prison on an island called Patmos. The Bible says in chapter 1 that he is there for his witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to these people. They are members of seven different churches in the Roman province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. Seven different churches, and they represent all the churches of that area. John is writing to them because they are asking some questions, three questions in particular that they are asking. Let me share with you what those three questions are. First, they were asking, why is this happening to us? Secondly, they were asking, where is God in this crisis of mine? And third, they were asking, what is about to happen to us? What does our future hold? I have never met a person going through a crisis who doesn't think about those three questions, at least to some extent. I've never known anybody. There may be somebody, but I doubt it. Most people who are honest will think about Uh, at least one, if not all three of those questions, when they get into a severe crisis. I'm not talking about a stomachache on a Monday morning. I'm talking about a crisis that that, uh, knocks the props out from under you. So they were asking these three questions. In answer to why this crisis was happening, question number one, John, in chapter one, informs them that, that this crisis is happening because of their witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And basically, in other words, he's saying this, that every crisis that we experience always has with it a reason that has to do with your faith. If you're going through a crisis, you may say, well, wait a minute, I lost my job. That crisis has to do with the the economy. It doesn't have to do with my faith. Absolutely, it has something to do with your faith. I'll tell you why. Because a crisis, regardless of whether it is an economic or financial crisis or a marital crisis or if it is a health crisis or if it is the loss of a loved one kind of crisis, whatever kind of crisis it is, it is it is there and it is designed to do a couple of things. One, it is there to test the quality of your faith. You and I may say that we have a strong faith, but let me tell you, regardless of what we say, a crisis will reveal what kind of faith you and I have. And sometimes it takes a crisis for you and me to realize that our faith may need to be strengthened. The second reason that God will allow a crisis in our lives is in order to strengthen us. Peter said this in one of his letters. He said that sometimes God will allow our faith to be tried in the furnace of crisis. Like gold going through a fire in order to purify it, God will allow crisis in our lives in order to strengthen our lives, to purify our faith, and to grow us as Christians, as people who are the people of God. Now, I need to rush and say this. A crisis can also destroy your faith. But that has never been God's intention. God never puts a crisis in your life for the purpose of destroying your faith. If, if you and I allow a crisis to destroy our faith, that will be a decision not that God made, but that you and I made. A crisis is always to test the quality of our faith and to strengthen our faith. That is the, the answer to the first question they had. Why is this happening to us? You may be in a crisis and you're wondering, why is this happening? Regardless of the, the, the physical reasons for the crisis that you're going through, listen to this. There is a reason that is always attached to your faith behind your crisis. Well, then John decides to answer the question about God. 
Sometimes people ask in a crisis, I wonder where God is. I don't feel God in my crisis. God has left me in my crisis. I feel that God has abandoned me in my crisis. And and to that question, where is God in my crisis? John gives three very comforting facts. The first one is found in chapter one, where he shows a picture of the Lord Jesus. It's It's a very fascinating and sensational picture. His hair is white. His eyes are a flame of fire. Out of his mouth, there's a two-edged sword. His feet are like bronze. He has a kingly robe with a gold sash. And when he speaks, his voice is like the sound of many waters, John said. And when he, when he began describing this wonderful picture of the Lord, he says this. He says, and he was walking among the lampstands. And the lampstands, he tells us, represented those seven churches that John was writing to. So Jesus is walking in the midst of the churches. Where is God in your crisis? God is present with you in your crisis. That's chapter 1. And then in chapter number 4, we we see John carried up into heaven. And he sees a throne in heaven. And there is someone sitting on the throne. And as we read further in chapter 4, we find out that the person sitting on the throne is God. A very important picture that the people John was writing to needed to hear and that you and I need to hear. Because when we're in a crisis, we sometimes wonder who is really on the throne. John's readers wondered if the Roman Empire was on the throne or if Caesar Domitian was really the one on the throne. You may be uh, in, in, in the middle of job loss or maybe you still have your job, but you had to take a, a, a long-term cut in salary that has really caused you some, some financial stress. And you're wondering, is the economy... on the throne? Is Wall Street on the throne? Is the government on the throne? Are the big banks on the throne? And John has a message, the same message that he gave his people, he gives to us. They're not on the throne. God is on the throne and he is in control of your crisis. There isn't a moment of a crisis that you and I will experience that God is not in total control of that crisis. Now, we may not fully understand all of that, but certainly we can rest and and be comforted in the fact that whatever we go through in life, God is on the throne. He's present with us. He's on the throne and in control. And then John said he looked and in the right hand of God who was on the throne, there was a book, a scroll. It was rolled up and sealed with seven wax seals, and it was written on both sides of the page. Every single place on that scroll had had writing on one side and writing on the back. It was full. It was a full future. That scroll contained the future of those people. Now remember where that scroll was. It was in the right hand of God. When we're in the middle of a crisis, we begin to worry about what's going to happen to us. Where's my next dollar going to come from? Will I ever be cured of this disease? When I lose a loved one, will I make it through the days that ensue after that? Will I be able to make it in in the demise of my marriage or will I be able to save my marriage? What is my future going to be like? And John tells us your future is in the hands of Almighty God. And you can rest in the comfort of that. Where is God in your crisis? He's present with you. He's on the throne and in control. And he holds your future in his hands. 
Now, there's another question that they may have been asking. In fact, I'm sure they probably were asking it, and it's this question. We really haven't touched on it in, the, in this series thus far, and that question is, what should we do? What do we do now? Now that I'm in this crisis, and yes, I know it's connected to my faith, and now you've told me what God is doing in the middle of my crisis, but what should I do now? And John has given them three directives, three directives that they should follow, three things they should do, in the middle of their crisis. The first thing he says is in chapters 2 and 3, he says you need to deal with some internal issues that handicap your ability to even confront the future. There are some internal issues uh, such as uh, a lack of passion for God. They lost their passion for God. There was apathy. There was, uh, 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 there was temptation to sin that they were dealing with. There was compromise that they were dealing with. One of the churches failed to see their crisis as an opportunity to serve Christ and to do great things. All all they could see was a crisis that was destructive. And they couldn't see that sometimes God will put a crisis in your path and it is an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for God to do great things. So he says, deal with some internal issues. And secondly, he says in chapter four, he says, you need, when you're in a crisis, you need to, to, to try to rise above the crisis and see your crisis from a big picture perspective. In other words, from the perspective of heaven. I don't know how everybody deals with the crisis. I assume that we all may deal with it a little bit differently. But one thing I've noticed about a lot of people, and certainly this is true of myself, when I'm in a crisis, that that little crisis and my little narrow window of that crisis is about all I see. I can't see uh, before the crisis started and I can't see after the crisis has ended. I'm right in the middle of it and I'm just overwhelmed by the crisis. And John is saying to us, he's he's saying, look, we need to we need to allow God to lift us up emotionally and mentally and and spiritually so that we can see that this crisis is temporary in nature. It had a beginning and before that beginning you were not in crisis and it'll have an ending and after that ending you won't be in crisis. We have to see the crisis from a heavenly perspective. So deal with internal issues, look at the crisis from a higher perspective and then number number three, this is found in chapter five, he says Commit your future into the hands of Jesus Christ. The most important decision that you and I can make when we are in a crisis is to commit our future into the hands of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says in chapter 5 that God was seated on the throne and he held a book of their future in his right hand. And John said he looked and no one was worthy to go take the book and to open it up. But then Jesus, the lion who was a lamb stood up and he alone was worthy to take the book from the right hand of God the Father and begin to open it up. What that chapter 5 is telling us is this. Commit your future into the Lord's hands. Invest your future into the Jesus stock market. And what will happen is, while everything may not always be rosy, you will find yourself in the best hands of all. Well, that brings us down to the question that chapter 6 introduces. What is going to happen to us? What is going to happen to us? Now, I I want you to understand this. From Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18, 12, uh, 13 chapters, 13 chapters from chapter 6 to chapter 18, we see 
three series of sevens. Now listen to me, don't check out on me here. Three series of sevens. There are seven uh, seals. At the end of the seven seals, there are seven trumpets. At the end of the seven trumpets, there are seven bowls filled with the wrath of God. So seven uh, seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Now there's another series of sevens in there, seven thunders. But John, when he hears the seven thunders, is told not to write what the thunders said. Just seal that up. That's not to be heard. So of the, se- the series of sevens that we can hear and we know about, we have the seals that open the book. Then we have the trumpets that the angels blow. And then we have the seven bowls of wrath. Now, uh, it, it, it's very important as we look through those series of sevens, uh, what they really reveal to us about the future. And there's a lot of disagreement, a lot of debate about what these different series of sevens uh, reveal. But I want to show you something that I think is, is a very simple uh, meaning that comes out of these three series of sevens. It tells us about uh, what the future is going to be like when you're in a crisis. What, their, what John's initial reader's future was going to be like in their crisis. And there are three things he tells us in these 13 chapters. The first thing he tells us about the future is this. Things will become worse. Things will get worse. The situation will get worse. And we see that immediately in chapters 6, 7, and 8 with the seven seals. Uh, This is not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that the future was going to get better. They wanted to hear that God was going to intervene and the the storms would would roll away to to, uh, blue skies and and the the waves would would calm. But that's not what he said. He said things are going to get worse. And here's why they're going to get worse. Chapter 6 reveals those seven seals. The first two seals, the first one deals with a white horse of conquest. The second one deals with a red horse of, of uh, response to the conquest. And so the first two seals, the first two horses deal with war. So war was in their future. And after war, the third seal was about famine, where they would be weighing out the food as they rationed it out to people and make sure you don't spill the oil and the wine and make sure you don't damage the fruit because uh, this, this is a famine that we're in. You have to be very, very careful. War, famine. Then he says there's a pale horse and that pale horse is death. And death is followed by Hades, which is the realm of the dead. And then there's martyrdom. With the next seal, the Bible says that he saw... The lives, the souls of those who were saints of God, Christians, who had, had been murdered, executed for their testimony. After that, there was a seal that, that revealed earthquakes and all kinds of natural disasters. And then, the final seal, which is in chapter number one, is this. There was silence in heaven. Now, what does all this mean? I believe it means that John is saying to these people, here's your future. It's going to get worse. There are going to be things like war. There'll be things like death. There'll be things like famine. There'll be things like martyrdom. There will be things like natural disasters you won't be able to understand. And you'll cry out to God and there will be times when all you get from heaven is silence. You ever had that happen to you? You ever been in a crisis? Your life was falling apart. You began crying out to God. You knew he was there. You know that he loves you. And yet there was silence from heaven. 
John says things are going to get worse. And then the second thing he tells us about their future is this. Not only will things get worse, but they will become increasingly worse. Now, boy, this is not what they wanted to hear. Now, I want you to see something. If you have your Bibles, I want to take us through a a few verses. I want you to see this. Uh, Revelation chapter number six, verses seven and eight. When you, when you study the seven seals and you see these different things that unfold, war, famine, uh, natural disasters, martyrdom, I want you to notice that what the seven seals tell us is that one-fourth of the earth is impacted by what is revealed in the seven seals. Now, I want you to say that. One-fourth. Say it. One-fourth of the earth is impacted. Now, to show us that, let me just look at uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 7. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power, here it is, over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beast of the earth. So I want you to get this. In the seals, one-fourth of the earth is affected. Now remember, the the second point John is making here is, is not only is your future going to get worse, but it will get increasingly worse. I'm going to show you this. We've seen in the seals, one-fourth. Now look to chapter 8. Chapter 8, beginning with verse 6. Now we've gone from the seven seals to the seven trumpets. And as each trumpet is blown, a similar uh, situation is described to the first uh, set of sevens, the seven seals, except for... The area that is impacted by the trumpets is different. All right? The seals, you had one-fourth. In the trumpets, it's going to be one-third. So look at uh, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down upon the earth. And here it is, a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and the verse goes on to say, and all of the grass. So you had one-fourth in the seals. Now we're seeing at least a third that's impacted by the trumpets. Let's go on. Verse number 8. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned into blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. You see where I'm going with this? You go from a fourth in the seals to a third with the trumpets. Verses 10 through 12, the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on what? A third of the rivers and the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Verse 12, and the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night was without light. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? So you see, when the seals, we've got a fourth. Already in the trumpets, we have a third. Let me show you one other place here. 
Chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 9, beginning with verse 13, says, The sixth angel sounded his trumpet. I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month were released to kill what? A third of mankind. So with the seals, you have how many? Tell me. The seals, one-fourth. With the trumpets, how many? All of a sudden, you see that the intensity is increasing. Do you see that? Uh, A third is bigger than a fourth. Hello? Well, then you go to the seven bowls. The bowls, you have to skip over into chapters 16, 17, and 18. With the seals, one-fourth of the earth is affected. With the trumpets, one-third of the earth is affected. When you get to the seals, the whole earth is affected. Chapter 16, verse 3. Chapter 16, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. That's a bowl of wrath, seven bowls. The second angel poured the second bowl into the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And here it is, every living thing, not a, not a fourth of them, not a third of them, but every living thing in the sea died. Verse 17 of that same chapter, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. That is literally, it is complete. It's full. Not a fourth, not a third. It's complete. It's done. Verse 20 tells us that every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. Every island, not a fourth of the islands, not a third of the islands, every single island fled away. And so you go from the seals, one fourth, to the trumpets, one third, to the the bowls of wrath, one whole. Do you see That not only is their future going to get worse, but it is going to get increasingly worse. And then comes the good news. Yes, their situation will get worse. Yes, it will even become increasingly worse. But then it will get better. Revelation chapter number 11. Revelation chapter number 11, beginning with verse 15, says this, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. That's good news. And He will reign forever and ever. That's good news. And the 24 elders, that represents the people of God, who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces, and they worshiped God. And here's what they were saying. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. That's good news. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So what what can we say about all this? What is John saying in answer to what is the future? What is about to happen to us? Basically, I I believe that we can say this. John is saying this. When you're in a crisis, I'm talking about a serious, long-term crisis. You can count on this. More often than not, your future is this. The situation that you're in will get worse. More often than not, it will become increasingly worse. And it'll get worse before it gets better. But it will 
get better. I'm about to turn uh, half a century old. Uh, A person who is half a century old has seen some crises. Many of you have seen far more than I have. But I will tell you this, every crisis that I've ever encountered in my life, when I got in the middle of it, there were not every time, but, but many times I thought, this is the end. I'm done. I'm cooked. Stick a fork in me. I'm done. And God would always bring me through. And right in the middle of my crisis, things would, would get worse before they would get better, but they got better. And I'll tell you that no matter what your crisis is, no matter how bad the pain is, no matter how intense the hurt is, no matter how bad the outlook appears to be, God is saying to you, while it may get worse before it gets better, it will get better. I had uh, knee surgery a few years ago. I was out in the yard doing something and stepped in a hole while I was working on the lawn. And I twisted my leg and started having a little pain right in the knee area. Started out like a low, throbbing toothache. And I thought, well, that baby will go away. I'll take a couple of three ibuprofen and uh, it'll be done. Well, a few weeks went by and the toothache got a little bit worse. Finally, I decided... I was, didn't want to take ibuprofen every day for the rest of my life, and I went to the doctor. I went to see Dr. Ballantyne. Dr. Ballantyne did an, I, uh, an MRI, and he said, Well, you have a torn meniscus. Your cartilage is torn there. It's going to take surgery, orthoscopic surgery. And so we set up a time for the surgery. And when we went into the surgery, before he, he put me out, he said this. He says, Now, He said, you walked in here with just a little bit of throbbing pain, but it was kind of bearable. He said, you'll be able after the surgery, because we've given you something to numb your knee, you're going to be able to walk out of here. He said, it's about 10 o'clock. He said, long about 6 o'clock. The numbing medicine is going to go off. And he said, you're not going to be able to stand on your leg for a while. He said, what I'm telling you is it's going to get a little worse before it gets better. But it will get better. That's what John is saying to these people. And that's what God is saying to you and me in our crisis. More than likely, if you're in a crisis, it will get worse. More than likely, if you're in the middle of a crisis, it will get increasingly worse. But it will get better. It will get better. There is hope. Don't quit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to serve a God who cares about us through good times and bad. We're grateful, Lord, that we have you to care for us when life is easy and we have you to care for us when life has just flat fallen apart. Lord, you don't leave us in our crisis. You're with us. You hold our future in your hands and you never relinquish your throne. You desire that we allow a crisis to change our lives, to make us better, to strengthen our faith, to test the quality of our faith. And Lord, you're straight up with us. That's one thing I love about your word. It's straight up. Things may get worse. In fact, they probably will. But after they get worse, they're going to get better. 
Tomorrow the pain is going to be just a tad, a tad easier to bear than it was yesterday. It's still going to be hard, but it'll be a little bit easier and a little bit easier after that. And one of these days, it's all going away. And Lord, I'm thankful that that's a promise that you give to those of us who know you as our Savior and Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd move in this building because there may be, there probably is somebody here, maybe several somebodies who have yet to invite you into their heart to be their Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray that you would make clear to us that these promises of your presence, of your purpose, of your provision, they're not made to folks who don't know you. They're made to folks who have consciously decided to have a relationship with Jesus. So Lord, I pray for those who need to come to be saved. I pray for those who are saved, but they need to join the church. I pray for those who are saved and life has tumbled in. Life is flat tumbled in. And they don't know how to handle what's going on. Lord, thank you for being the God of every one of our situations, crisis or otherwise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.